Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another great week here on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. I have been trying to raise the bar when it comes to the caliber of guests that we get on the show week in and week out. And I'm really thrilled today to say that I have a topic and an expert on that topic that you have been asking me, my loyal listeners, for a long time to cover. So we are talking today all things raising capital. And my guest today is Brad Blazer, or I should say Sir Brad Blazer. Uh, More on that story very shortly when you listen to the show and how he got his knighthood. Anyway, formerly Brad was the CEO of a small oil company. He is now a sought-after speaker on the subject of raising capital. He's raised in excess of, get this, $2 billion, $2 billion, that is, and he mentors others around the world as part of a global coaching business on how to raise funds from high net worth investors to build, buy, scale businesses, and also fund projects like real estate. If I could be the catalyst and teach people how to raise money, whether it's a few hundred thousand or a couple million, I can change people's lives. So this is what we're gonna talk about today, what you're about to hear. We're gonna talk obviously about raising money, raising capital, how you can use capital, and how you can get clever with other people's money, the pitfalls, all that sort of stuff. We're gonna talk about his journey of discovering his talent for raising capital, which eventually led him to becoming, as I mentioned, one of the most sought after speakers on the subject. And then we're going to get right into the nuts and bolts, like the six-step process for raising capital and the blueprint around how you can build trust with potential investors. And there is some stuff in here that I haven't heard before. Very, very simple in its approach. But I tell you what, if you have to raise money for your business, which I know a lot of you do, there's some things in here which are going to be very, very valuable just in terms of how you do that. The biggest mistake that I see people make when they try to raise capital is they pitch the idea or the investment too prematurely in the process. Nobody's going to invest with you until they trust you. And finally, we talk about the mindset that is needed, is, is important to be successful in raising capital. So are you ready? You asked for this. You asked about raising money, raising capital. So here it is. This is the episode. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Sir Brad Blazer. Hey, everyone. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week, another week and another awesome guest, a good friend of mine here with us today. Mr. Brad Blazer. In fact, I should call him Sir Brad Blazer. We'll get into that in a second. I met Brad when I was talking at an event last year in the US and I was talking about exiting. I was talking about how you have to structure capital to be able to invest properly to get scale. And straight after I finished speaking, Brad came up to me and said, he's the guy when it comes to kind of connecting capital, structuring capital, investing, fundraising. In fact, he's got a business called Capital School, which probably says everything. I thought, you know what? I've got to get him on the show and we have to do all things raising money and being clever with how you can grow and scale your business using finances. So Brad, welcome to the show, my man. (laughs) Great. It's great to see you, Nick. Great to be here and add value to your audience today. Fantastic. So we'll kick we'll kick off with the joke, the the sir joke. Um, so you you got knighted. <laughs> I did. Yes. I give us give us the, the quick give us the quick you know sixty seconds on that. Sure. No, I got uh, bopped on the head with the sword. So wow. a good friend of mine spoke at my event last year. 
Um, he was knighted a few years ago in 2019 alongside Tony Braxton, Paula Abdul. And um, he said, you know, just out of the blue, he called me and said, you know, hey, I got a question for you. And I said, sure. He said, how'd you like to be knighted? And I'm like, knighted, like, like Richard Branson, Elton John. And he's like, yeah, you know, royal knighting, a real deal. And I'm like, well, first question, of course, is, is this some kind of a BS bullshit knighthood, like Freemasonry or the Knights of Columbus? Which was my like, question, oh, wasn't it? Let's be frank. That was my like question, real, Brad, wasn't it? This is like the real thing. You're going to be knighted by a prince. Your name as a knight will be recorded in the European court system. Uh, this is the real deal. I'm like, man, what an honor. Like, like, what is this all based on? He said, in knighthood, it's based on what they call meritorious honor, eight merits of honor, things like philanthropy, entrepreneurship. Obviously, if you're, uh, you know, an expert and you invent something in, uh, you know, arts and sciences, uh, you know, music, of course. And I'm like, I'm blessed. I'm humbled. Absolutely. So they interviewed me as a, um, you know, as a civilian. He made the nomination then to the Duke, uh, Duke Gerhardt, who's originally from Austria that now resides in Hawaii. And then if the Duke likes you, you know, check out, it then goes to the prince. And basically after going through this process, they said, okay, you know, you've been uh, recognized and the investiture is going to be uh, in February. And so, uh, you know, flew out, there was 24 of us because they usually bring 12 nights in a year. They weren't able to do it the year prior, Nick, because of COVID. Yeah. And uh, it was a big deal. We had the U.S. Marine Corps Color Guard, you know, they're opening up the event. And so, you know, the U.S. Marines are there. We had the Scottish Royal Bagpipers there. And I'm like, you know, this is, this is like a big deal. You know, paparazzi was there. The press was there. Um, and the funny thing is you really kind of go through the ceremony not recognizing the significance of that title until you look at the other people that have been knighted before you and you realize this is better than any mastermind I could ever be a part of. I was going to say, the, the, the networking in that event um, no, must so be we, incredible. We got, we, got, we got people like <laughs> Sir James Dentley. We got people, of course, like Rolando Blackman in sports, the highest point score ever for the Dallas Mavericks, NBA All-Star. We got Ray Parker Jr., one of the world's largest global recording artists. Oh, Paula, wow, really? Abdul, you know, Tony Braxton, all uh, uh, this other guy that sold his business for over a billion dollar valuation, Alex Stern. Yeah, he was the founder of a, uh, a CRM system, Constant Contact. So you look at this network of all these people that have now been knighted and you're like, wow, this is amazing. So yeah, Sir Brad Blazer to your community. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, I, I, so I wanted to ask you that question just for a bit of fun, but let's get into, we're, we're going to do um, all things um, raising money, capital, how you use capital, how you get clever with other people's money, how you structure creatively, uh, pitfalls, you know, some of the, some of the mistakes that you see people making. I think in context, just so we kind of get into it, let's hear a little bit about your your background and story that leads you to being an expert in this space. Yeah, you know, I was studying to be an architect, Nick. Uh, you know, my original plans in life uh, were to basically go to school, uh, university, become an architect, and then use those skills to uh, become a real estate developer. And in my early 20s, I responded to an ad in the local newspaper. I was looking for a job. And so there was a small oil company in Austin, Texas that hired me on. The CEO just saw that I was very quick on my feet, was a really a cocky, confident kid. And he said, Brad, we're going to hire you to get on the phone. And your job is to take these lists of high net worth accredited investors and reach out to these people, build trust, establish a relationship and convince them ultimately to invest in our oil and gas drilling programs. 
And so I got real good at that. I was working maybe 12 to 15 hours a week between class after school, but I was making close to $100,000 back in the early 80s, which for a 21-year-old kid, it's a lot of money. It's good money back then. It's uh, so not bad money to, now for some people too, so yeah. they're not bad. So uh, you know, I went to work for a second company doing exactly the same thing. But unfortunately, we discovered that the, uh, the principals in the second company were dishonest. They were lying and cheating people. And so we filed a class action lawsuit, which we ultimately won. But the investor base that I had largely assembled looked at me and none of them had ever met me. I mean, I'm doing most of this stuff on the telephone. This was before we had Zoom and the internet. So they said, well, Brad, you know, now that this has happened, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. You know, and they said, why don't you do the same thing, but just do it with some integrity and some honesty behind it? I'm like, great. So <laughs> I had never drilled an oil well. I knew nothing about the oil business, Nick. <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing about running a company other than just, you know, how to put business cards and letterhead together. So what I did is I called an attorney and I said, look, I want to form an LLC, launch an oil company because I knew how to raise capital. And so what I did over the course of the six months is what I tell every entrepreneur to do, build a team around you. I got a CPA, I got an attorney, I got a petroleum geologist, we got some leases, and I was the guy with my partner that raised the capital on our first couple deals. And before you knew it, you know, this thing took off. We had money being thrown at us left and right. We, uh, we eventually grew over about 10 years to scale and grow to a company where we had about 35 employees raising millions of dollars a month with drilling programs going on in Texas and Oklahoma and Louisiana. And then as I like to say, in the late 80s, early 90s, two big events really changed the landscape. One for us here in the United States was the Tax Reform Act that took away the incentives for people to invest in the energy space. And then of course, the other big one was just collapsing energy prices. So I, over the course of about a year, just slowly dissolved and collapsed the business until one day we no longer existed. I went back to school, uh, graduated and came out and realized my skill, what I knew how to do really good was raise capital. I'd raise millions of dollars. And so I- yeah, Where did you, myself. just to pause you there for a second, where, where, where did you first, I mean, because you mentioned it just a second ago as well, where did you first realize that you were good at this? You know, I guess it was probably in my late 20s and it was really- um, seeing something on TV that was kind of the trigger for me. Um, okay. I was watching a TV show and on the show, Steve Harvey was basically in front of his audience. And he said, I believe everybody here in the audience has a unique talent. It's what I call your something special. But he said, mm -hmm. the problem with most people is you'll never find it. You'll go through life, not really knowing what that hard skill is that makes you uniquely talented. And it hit me about a week later, I was sitting on my patio, you know, smoking a cigar, drinking a scotch. And I'm like, Oh my God, like my talent is raising capital, knowing how to approach investors, understanding what to say to them, you know, knowing how to uh, go from A to Z because it is a process, you know, there's no doubt about it. I've seen all the big mistakes that everybody makes in trying to approach investors and it is definitely a process. And so when I realized that, I went to work largely in financial services for some of the world's largest global uh, firms, ING out of the Netherlands, uh, Allianz out of Germany. And then I moved over to the real estate space and aligned myself with some of the largest real estate sponsors and issuers today that manage hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. You know, some of them have real estate investment trusts. They trade on the various exchanges. And then about maybe three years ago, broke away, started capital school because I realized that everybody has a dream and a desire to do something bigger in life. And when I probe a little bit and I say to them, Nick, like, how long have you had this dream to do something big? People have 
had that dream for years. Like, God, as long as I can remember, I've wanted to start my own business. Well, what's been holding you back? The funny thing is very rarely do I ever get the limiting beliefs or the fear. It's always, I just don't have the money to move forward. I just don't have the capital. But, but under, underneath that is no, kind it, of the, the limiting belief. Behind, there is a limiting belief even behind that statement, though, isn't there, to some extent? Well, there, there is to an extent. But what I realized is if I could be the catalyst and teach people how to raise money, whether it's a few hundred thousand or a couple million, I could change people's lives. And so today, you know, me and my team, we love getting the emails. We love getting the text. We love getting the videos from all of these people that said, Brad, I just bought my first apartment building or, you know, Brad, I just raised my first couple hundred thousand. I now see the light at the end of the tunnel because you get to some point, I believe, as an entrepreneur where you've been successful, you've made money, where it's now time to give back. You want to help others. And, you know, you look at people like Ed Milet, guys worth hundreds of millions. Why in the hell is he doing what he does? It's because he's given back. You look at Gary V. And so I'm just at a point where people are like, well, geez, if you raise $2 billion, you know, why are you peddling this little $2,000 course? It's not because I need the money, folks. It's because I want to help people get where I am. But more importantly, I realize that they don't teach this stuff. You got to learn this stuff from somebody that has a demonstrated capacity that's done it for many, many years. Great. Well, let's get into it because this yeah. is this is this is fascinating conversation because I, I I see it from a slightly different lens, but it's very aligned, right? So so in the in the world that I'm in, which is acquisitions, exits, all the stuff that you know, one of the the thing that stops someone being successful in what we call acquisition entrepreneurship, so buying a business as, as opposed to starting one, is that they might go out there and find the deal. Right, a great business. They they yep. they build rapport with the seller, all this sort of stuff, right? And then it all falls down because they can't raise that ten percent, fifteen percent that they need, almost like that down payment, right? To be able to leverage the rest of it, right? It. All that sort of thing. so so so. Let's just unpack this a bit because, like you know, if you could solve that problem for these people, right, that changes their whole world. Absolutely, you bet it does. And so I'd love to know, let's go through the process a bit if we can today. And I definitely want to touch on mindset as well, right? How sure. you have to show up to be successful. But in all your experience and years of doing this, what is the proven process to, to going out there and being attractive to investors and obviously being successful in raising? So, you know, there's investors everywhere. And I always explain to people, there's not one right or wrong way to get in front of them. You know, you can join meetup groups, you can join communities where you have investors that are meeting to discuss real estate, stock market, crypto and digital assets. And by definition, everybody in any one of these groups are investors. You can advertise online, at least here in the United States, if you're doing a Reg D, as long as the investors are accredited. But it's really knowing what to say each step of the way. Think of it this way. The biggest mistake that I see people make when they try to raise capital, Nick, is they pitch the idea or the investment too prematurely in the process. Okay. You have to realize nobody's going to invest with you until they trust you. So when it's time to write the check, there has to be enough foundational trust for them to feel comfortable moving forward. And trust takes time. So I talk about something called the trust sequence. The trust sequence is something that takes place over three or four conversations or meetings, but it literally is six steps in this process. Starts with perception. What do they think about you when they first meet you? Then it goes to temptation. You ask questions. You'll uncover what will compel that investor to move forward with you. Then you start building that relationship and that connection. 
And then we ask something we call the validation phrase. But if you understand this six-step process and you understand something else I talk about called the four-step blueprint, which is really not a script, it's just understanding that to get from A to Z, more than likely it's going to be four or five meetings or calls with that prospective investor. The first two are all about them and building trust. And then it's okay to come back on the third or the fourth conversation and now talk about that opportunity that you have. But the way that I've been doing this for many years and the way that I really teach people is you need to validate that that other person trusts you enough and essentially invites you to call them when there's an investment or an opportunity. So there's a lot of what I call uh, negative selling. Right now, Nick, I just don't have an investment opportunity that I can discuss with you. And I say that repetitively in the first and the second meeting. It's the old takeaway sale. But then at the end of my second call, I use a phrase. I call it the validation phrase. And it goes something like this. Nick, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you, but as I've explained all along, right now, I just don't have an opportunity that I can discuss. And the reason is I always like to give my existing investors the right of first refusal on most of my new deals. And as a result, as you can see, they tend to fill up pretty quickly. But here's what I'd love to do, Nick. I keep a list of people on my desk that have expressed interest. And in the event I have a small opening or an allocation I'm trying to fill, I'd simply love to reach out to you and give you a call if I think it's something that you'd get excited about. Would that be okay? When they say yes, what have they just done? They've literally asked you. They've given permission for you to pitch something to them. There you go. And so now you've significantly increased your chances of success because on that next call, after you warm up a little bit, you say, look, I'm just going down my list of people. You asked me to reach out to you in the event I have an opening on something I think you could get excited about. It just so happens I got this deal or I got this property or I got this opportunity. And now it's okay to pitch because they've invited you to do that. You now send out the material, your PPM, your pitch deck. And then on that fourth call, you're answering questions and you're closing and hopefully you're getting a new investor and you're getting a new capital partner. But it takes four calls, an introductory call, a follow-up call with that validation phrase I just used with a third call to pitch and then a close. So every time you're talking to somebody as a potential investor, Nick, the most important thing is you need to understand what you're trying to accomplish on each one of these calls. And if you understand four steps in the process with six steps to create that trust, they go together like a happy marriage. And all I'm trying to get people to understand is you can't pitch an idea or an investment to somebody on that first or second call, because if you do that, when you try to close them, man, they're going to be like so noncommittal and so evasive. They're going to give you every excuse we've ever heard. But if you follow the blueprint and you follow this process and you slow down, and you're somewhat patient, guess what? Money <laughs> comes out the other end. It's it, it's just a magical thing. And you know, I have videos from students that just say, man, that four-step blueprint, once I understood that, it was a game changer for me. Well, it's, I mean, even the way you're talking about it now, I'm just thinking to the, I mean, I get pitched every single day. Yeah, exactly. Um, usually we multiple times a day, right? And and yeah. and the and the common one, right, which we can talk about is definitely a mistake, is um is the LinkedIn pitch. <laughs> someone, yeah. you know, absolutely. Someone sends me a pitch deck. Like they they yeah. send you a pitch deck. So first and foremost, there hasn't been any process of NDA or anything like that. They just send you the full pitch they deck, it. yeah, and absolutely. it's like you're their best friend, and you've never heard of this person before. Yeah. And I'm thinking, a, 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 I feel like a number, but yeah. B, it's like, 
I mean, what, what is someone thinking? I mean, what's the thinking so, there, Brad? <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that's the shotgun approach. And uh, there's no personalization. I mean, let's face it, we've all been solicited that way. You know, even yes, just a yes. random email out of the blue. And, uh, you know, I just delete them. I don't even respond. But, you know, what it shows is that you haven't done your homework on that person. You have no idea who they are, whether they're a good avatar for your presentation or even the investment. But it just shows that it is a shotgun approach. Um, there is a right way to do this, everybody, and the right way works. And that is to, you know, reach out to somebody and just find out if they have any interest at all. And if they do get on an introductory call, but ask a lot of questions because it's been proven scientifically, you build trust in a relationship by getting that other person to open up. You know, people love to talk about themselves. And so as you're asking simple questions like, have you ever invested in something like this before? No. Well, great. You know, while you haven't invested in something like this before, this might be suitable for you. What are you looking for? Income, growth, or do you like to see both in the investments you make? What's your time horizon? How important are tax benefits? Are you doing something special now with your investment dollars to maybe put a kid through university or to invest in a second home that you can use as an investment property? So the more you know in that initial process, you're doing two things. Number one, you're finding out if what you have is suitable because at the end of the day, you are a fiduciary. You don't want to take this person's hard-earned money and uh, you know not recognize that it's a suitable or worthy investment. But the second thing is you're finding out what will ultimately tempt them to move forward in this process with you when you go to close, or at least when you ask them to invest alongside you. Nick, you know, you remember the first time we spoke, you said that you were looking to invest to buy a second home that you could use as a vacation property. We're projecting to two and a half to three extra money over the next four to six years. So 100,000, come back to you as 250, 300. Can you see how that will benefit you in accomplishing that goal? And it's always features and benefits, features and benefits. If you can tie the investment and the benefits to the person, you're much more inclined to uh, to get them to invest with you. It's very similar um, in terms of the rapport yep. process, again, when you're trying to buy someone's company, right? You know, Absolutely. Which is, which is the reverse of what we're talking about. But something. So let's, let's talk a little bit. So there's a couple of things just to run by you. So I find... Um, edification is is massively power, powerful too. So if, if if I introduce you to someone or you introduce me to someone, there's already an acceptance. It might not be a deep level of rapport at that point in time, but there's an acceptance yep. of a conversation. So that's one thing that I think is important. So it's not just a cold intro. Correct. But those first two, first two conversations, right, where you're not pitching anything, what struck me when you were speaking was, you know, I, if I if I'm looking to raise money, I should be mm -hmm. having those conversations all the time just anyway, yeah. even if I haven't got something to, to pitch. Because <laughs> when I do have something, when the time is right, I've spent enough, I suppose, social capital, right, yeah. in those relationships that it, that it is a genuine, you know, I spoke to you three, you know, three, four weeks ago about X right now, then there was nothing, but now there is. Yep. That sort of thing, isn't it? So it's not something that you just do as a one-off event. It's something that if it's important to your business model, that you would be doing as almost like a habit. Absolutely, you know, and that's, I think the biggest message that you just shared is people always ask me, you know, Brad, I'm in real estate, I wanna raise money, great. There are two approaches that most entrepreneurs make, especially the new ones. They go and they get a deal under contract, maybe it's their very first multifamily deal. And now they've got to raise, you know, a decent amount of money, maybe it's 1.2 million. In commercial real estate, usually there's a 60-day time horizon. The seller expects to close that property in 60 days. Now, 
you might have an extension clause in your purchase and sale agreement, but as you're getting closer and you're realizing, oh my God, I'm falling short. You know, I've only raised 300,000. I still have 900,000 to go. You reach out to the broker. Hey, I need more time. Now the seller's getting antsy. He's getting cold feet. Can Brad close? And ultimately, as you and I know, if you're not able to raise the money, the deal unravels. You burn the bridges with a good real estate broker that could potentially bring you more deals. That seller, if they're well-known in the society, is going to spread your name around and say, don't ever do business with this guy. He's a shady character. You don't want that to happen. So the alternative maybe is to launch a fund or at least be soliciting investors all the time. Because I explain to entrepreneurs, the fund is like an asset. Now, when people are talking to you, you can say, look, I'm a real estate entrepreneur. I have a fund. We're raising $10 million. It has a distribution that pays out quarterly, yada, yada, yada. Now you can accept investor subscriptions all the time because it's going to go over here. And now when you're ready to buy something, hopefully you've raised a decent amount of money. All you got to do is make up the difference. Or you can show that you've now got, of course, the money in the bank and deal from a position of strength because in real estate, like any business, of course, cash is king. But I agree wholeheartedly. You want to be in the business of having that conversation with people all of the time. While you might not have an investment, you're gathering names, you're building that database so that when it is time to raise capital, you can do it ex expeditiously, you can do it quickly, and you're not starting from zero. Yeah. yeah. I remember back in the private equity days when we were raising, you know, funds into the hundreds of millions, you know, it would, yep. take, it would take hundreds of meetings sometimes. To do that. <laughs> but, um, but what people don't realize, and this is something interesting, because I love the idea of, of having a fund, right? Even you know, a fund doesn't mean, and certainly in private equity terms, that you've got someone's money and it's sitting in a bank somewhere. Right. Because right. you know, a lot of people think that's the case. Oh, I've, right. I've gone and raised, you know, $100 million, let's say, for example, big number. That's not sitting in the private equity firm's coffers. Right. <laughs> but what, right. what is what is agreed is yeah. the intent to transfer, you know, whatever the percentage of money that's required for any deal right. that's happening. So the money is actually sitting still with the investor. It's right. just there is paperwork that agrees that when something comes up that, you know, everyone agrees, that's when it transfers. So, so it's the same principle. I just bring that up because sometimes people think that when you raise money, you actually have to have all the, you get all the cash. All yep. you're really looking for is that intention, that intention exactly. and commitment to be able to go forward if the deal is the right deal and it ticks all the boxes in terms of your investment thesis. So that, yep. that maybe wonderful. simplifies it a little bit for people as well. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Okay. Right. So in terms of time frame. Because I we, we're touching on probably errors and mistakes. So so yeah. error number one is just going out there and asking for something without building trust and rapport. Um, what about expectations on time frame? So if I if I've got a great um, a great opportunity and I need money super quick, mm -hmm. how long does it normally take? I mean, again, I, I get it's probably depends on how good you are at building rapport over a period of time. But does raising money take time? I mean, that's my my question here. <laughs> It does take time. And that's the reason most people aren't successful. Um, you know, we live in a society where everybody likes fast food. Uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, they expect to pick up the phone and, and start raising money in a matter of weeks when in reality it takes months. But here's the thing. You have to realize that if you're going to go out and attract capital and raise money, the first thing you need is you need the collateral material in order to do that. What I mean by that is you've got to have the semblance of an investor package. Well, usually that's a one pager or we call it a teaser. Yep. Usually that's going to be a PowerPoint or some form of a pitch deck. And then usually there's you know a private placement memorandum or an executive summary with paperwork to onboard that investor once they commit capital. 
So there's the process on the front end of just getting that stuff put together. But let's just assume, you know, you got a nice pitch deck, you have a little nice corporate piece. I would say that realistically, going from zero to 60, meaning building a relationship, having that second, third, fourth call or meeting with a prospective investor, you're looking at probably two to three months uh, because, you know, you've got to have an initial outreach. You're going to warm that person up with an email. You're going to follow up maybe 10 days later. You're going to ask that validation phrase. Then there's going to be a third call in that process. Maybe that person works with an advisor that they want to have a meeting with. Maybe they don't. So, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. I tell people, though, that, you know, it's not going to take you six to nine months if you're prepared and you really train and you understand the process, you can start raising capital as quickly as, you know, 60 to 90 days. Yeah. As long as you said you're prepared. But you got to have, you got to have the collateral material on the front end, which might take a, a month to put together, you know, and what I always explain to people is the very first thing in this trust sequence is perception. People are going to check you out. So do yourself a favor, do a social audit, step back, and ask people that you trust, take a look at my LinkedIn profile. Tell me what you think that says about me. Take a look at my Facebook. Take a look at my Instagram. Does that communicate who you want to be when you're client facing with potential investors? You know, the other thing that's also so very important is what we call brand. It's making sure there's a consistent message and theme in how you're approaching people. And when you look at the biggest companies in the world, the Apple, the Nikes, the Amazons, you know, when they sit down with a big marketing company or PR firm to launch a big campaign, usually what they'll say is everything we do has to stay within this color palette. There might be five, seven, 10 colors, but they know that if that marketing company uses those colors, the theme and the appearance of everything that is presented will have some uniformity behind it. I can't tell you how many times I get someone's business card and I look at it and it looks so very different from the website and there's no disconnect to their PowerPoint. And I'm like, who are you, man? There's no consistency in well, your It comes back to here. trust, doesn't it? I mean, I, I often say one of the best definitions of a brand is, is, a, is a promise of consistency. There you right, go. Two really that's well said. Absolutely. Exactly. And you know, when you think promise is a promise means something, right? It means that I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to yes. exactly. And I agree with you because like, you know, when you're asking someone, you know, to part with their hard earned cash, you can never, you can never take that for granted, right? Yeah. <laughs> In any context, doesn't matter how much money someone's got, you know, there's an emotional part of that. Yeah. So let's, let's play around a little bit as we are with, with mistakes and errors here to some extent. So now another error is not being prepared, not having the right tools to be effective. Yeah. Um, what do you think about hiring um, people who position themselves as professional, professional fundraisers? Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a good thing for someone to do? Or do you think it's better for you to take that and learn to do it yourself because you're going to be more credible because that investment is going to be something that you're going to then utilize, for example, for your business? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that it is okay. You have to, of course, understand the do's and the don'ts. You know, here in our country, there are some securities regulations. Uh, you cannot pay someone a commission. You cannot pay someone a performance fee that can be misconstrued as a percentage of the amount raised. There are right ways to can do, not do it that. I thought that was not, I mean, this is interesting, not that I do this stuff, but I, I know people who position themselves as if I find you, whatever it is, a hundred grand, you know, I want a 5% success fee. Do you have to be regulated to do that? 
you have to be regulated. In order for someone to be paid a commission or a percent, they have to be licensed or it has to be run through a broker dealer. If they're doing it, they're doing it illegally and they just don't know that. So there definitely yeah. are some regulations that you have to be cognizant of. Now, here's the thing. What I tell people is, look, you can hire people to do the initial outreach. In other words, you can hire an assistant, you can hire an admin, and you can say, look, you know, here's the list or here's the process. But when you get a person to a point where they're ready to have a conversation about the investment, I want to be the one to do the call. So, you know, you personally may not be the person that's doing the buttering up, making the initial outreach, making that first and second call. But there is going to be a point when that potential investor wants to talk to the principal because he wants to talk to the person he's relying on that ultimately is going to be creating the value, generating the returns, or really is what I call the operator, the issuer. So it is okay to have somebody do the grunt work, kind of setting you up for the big call, maybe for the close. But what a lot of people don't realize is if you're just going to hire a placement agent to go out there and, quote, raise the capital for you, that may or may not be successful because ultimately at the end of the day, there's two problems. Number one, they may misrepresent something. And in the business of securities and selling investments, misrepresentation is a big problem. Yeah. Number two is they may omit something that makes the information that was presented misleading because they omitted a material fact that maybe only you know and that person did not know. And then, of course, thirdly, most investors, especially the big ones, they want to get to know the person that is the sponsor, the general partner. But, you know, the outreach or that initial grunt work, yeah, that's okay to be done by other people where really what they're doing is they're teeing you up for that big call so that all you're really doing is coming on when people are accredited, you know, they're qualified, you know, there's genuine interest there. Because, you know, like I said, this process takes time. You want to be able to work on your business, not in your business. So if you're working on the business, where are you spending your time? It should be in front of people that are qualified, that are check writers, where you're really just delivering value and you're closing that sale. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a bit of a warning shot for a lot of people out there who think that they can just broker. It's the same actually in certain states in the US with selling businesses. So the whole idea of investment banking, corporate finance or broking, for example, in Florida, where we met, you yeah. have to be licensed. You have to be a real estate broker to be able to sell a business. Do you know yeah. that? I did not know that. No, Crazy, I isn't it? but yeah. I don't know. The, the, I just think it's an interesting thing because a lot of people think they can do it. I'm not quite sure what the repercussions are and mm -hmm. what the levels oh. are and things like that. But yeah, it's, um, a, it's a serious offense. I mean, here's the thing, you know, in the United States, there's a very, very landmark Supreme Court case called the Howey test. And, you know, plaintiff's attorneys will use this. Of course, any regulator, state or federal will use this. And it defines what a security is. If a security meets the Howey test, you're in the securities business, which means you're regulated now by the SEC and the various state securities boards. Here are the four things. Number one, was there an exchange of money? Yes. Number two, was it in a business enterprise? Yes. Number three, was the return on investment derived through the expertise or somebody having input to generate a return on your capital? Yes. And number four is basically, is there the expectation of a profit? Yes. So if you can answer yes to those four things, you're selling a security. Therefore, you're now regulated. <laughs> wow. And so a lot of people don't understand that. See, that's very different than me being a salesman and I sell you a gold bar. 
hey, I'm selling you gold. Well, that's not a security because the price of gold is not dictated by anything that I do. I have no involvement in generating return on that investment for you. But the second you invest in real estate with me where I'm rehabbing the house or I'm collecting the rent, now you see I'm responsible for that return. And so that's the difference between selling something that is not a security and offering something to somebody that is. Yeah, it's worth unpacking that, I think, because again, a lot of people don't understand that detail. So let's exactly. talk a little bit about um, Capital School um, as well. The, you know, so someone, I mean, the people who come to you are generally people who are looking to learn how to raise money um, mm -hmm. and learn the process of doing that. So just take us through, let's imagine I turn up and I say, oh, listen, Brad, I want to raise a million bucks for my company, one of my companies mm -hmm. in the US. Um, I don't know where to start. I know we've covered some of this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but just, just run through how you work with people. I think it'd be good to understand the, the process sure. that they go through. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, various levels of service, Nick, depending on what somebody really needs. Uh, you know, we have an elite level where if somebody really uh, wants us to put together their entire private place memorandum and put together their pitch deck and really deliver to them their entire investment package, we can do that. It's a turnkey service where now you have a team of experts, you have a team of people that do this full time. So you know your pitch deck is gonna look like a million dollars. You know that your private placement memorandum is gonna meet with all of the regulations and have all the things in there that it needs. But most people that come to us just wanna learn the basics. So you know it's really understanding these key concepts, these key principles that I talk about. It's understanding what to say to prospective investors, how to get in front of investors, and more importantly, just how to source them, you know, how to build that pipeline. One thing that Grant Cardone says is money follows motion, or he also says, people got to know you before they will flow you. What you <laughs> have to realize is the process of raising capital falls on certain systems and structures. One of the other big mistakes I see people make is they don't have structure to their business. They have no CRM system. So they might have a great conversation with somebody. There might be genuine interest, but then they haven't created a reminder somewhere to remind them to call that person back a week later to move that ball down the field, just like a quarterback does in football. And so you're creating all of this activity. And I say, well, what happened to that guy you talked to last week? Oh, I forgot to call him back. So you're on this treadmill generating a lot of productivity for yourself that's not leading anywhere because you don't have the systems in place for your capital raising side of the business. So one of the things that we do spend a lot of time with is teaching the entrepreneurs how to build that foundation that they can then scale from. We have students that are raising you know, anywhere from a couple hundred thousand all the way up to tens of millions of dollars and everything in between. But it comes to basically a weekly call an active community of members all around the world today. We coach students in roughly 10, 11 countries. We just got our first Indian today, actually over oh, India. Fantastic. So, you know, <laughs> Congratulations. This, works. this works all over the world. It doesn't matter whether you're in Australia, New Zealand, or Canada, or over in Great Britain, where you are, Brazil, or Puerto Rico, or in India, or in the Middle East, or even here in the US. We have students everywhere that are having massive success because it's based again on key fundamental principles and concepts that can be taught. The real reason, Nick, that most people don't raise money is it's hard work. You know, it's like anything else in life that's going to make you hugely successful. And unfortunately, a lot of people are too comfortable where they are. And as a result, they don't want to do the work to raise money from other people. But that's, if you read that's, the book- That's pretty much life, Brad. That's well, pretty yeah, much well, life. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. But, you know, if you read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, 
by Kiyosaki, he says one of the key fundamental principles to building wealth is understanding it's all about OPM. You know, we're very limited to the extent of creating and amassing wealth because of our job or because of our limited finances. But once we learn that we can really accelerate things and go much further, farther and faster, leveraging the resources that other people bring to the table, it's a game changer. And here's the thing that most people don't recognize. When you work with an investor, there's not just one, there's three types of capital out there. Yes, there is the money. That's the, the money that exchanges hands. We call that monetary capital. Yeah. But let's not forget relationship capital. Nick, if you invested, for example, 200000 with me, who do you now know that you can introduce me to as another potential investor? You see, it's called relationship capital. Once you prove your abilities to an investor, guess what? If you ask them the right way, they open up their network. Now raising money accelerates because like you said, it's the edification. I don't have to tell your best friend, Rob, that I'm a brilliant and wonderful guy because you've already done that for me. Then there's the intellectual capital. Maybe that person that just invested could be an advisor. Maybe they could be invited to your board of directors and provide some direction. Why? Because that's where they made their money. They're an expert in the same space that you're in. So as you're going through this process, everybody realize that there's different forms of capital that people can bring to the table for you. Yeah, one of the, um, the sayings that I heard a little while ago now, but I love is this idea of resourcefulness, the idea that, you know, someone somewhere in the world is waking up with the resources that you need, right? Absolutely. So, you know, and, and, and they want to give you those resources, right? So your job is to find them, you know, yeah. not to necessarily create those resources yourself right? Which comes absolutely. back to that second totally point around relationship. Well, absolutely well said, you bet. So let's talk, to finish off, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. We've touched a little bit on um, mindset, you know, mm -hmm. through the conversation and the, I suppose the, the reasons why people do what they do and what they don't do. In in the world of raising, raising money, raising finance, raising mm -hmm. capital, how do you think about mindset? You know, how, how do you explain it when you talk, when people ask you about how they have to show up and how they have to be you know, how, how do you unpack that? Well, I mean, number one is you have to definitely exude confidence. You know, you cannot go in like the timid sheep. You have to exude confidence. You have to basically um, understand that investors have reasons not to invest. I won't say you want to go in there, quote, cocky, but you need to exude confidence. You need to basically mm -hmm. have the attitude. You know, I do this every day. Um, and, you know, you don't want to come across desperate. The way that you avoid doing that is you just basically take the attitude. Some will. Some won't. So what? Who's next? And if you project that attitude and you understand that at some point you have to close, you know, it's it's very rare that somebody says, Nick, man, this sounds great. Like, what are the next steps? When do I write my check? It doesn't work that way. It does every now and then if you're lucky. But, you know, invariably, once you answer the questions, you're going to have to ask that person to move forward in this process and invest with you. The biggest mistake most people make is they just don't ask for the sale. I mean, we know that from any yeah. sales in the world, right? Whether it's auto sales, real estate sales, but in any business or any industry, whether you're a doctor, an attorney, you have to close, you have to ask for the investment. So I think that's one of the other big problems is people understand that this process takes time, but when they get in there and they actually start doing it, they, they cave in, they, they're, they're, they're looking up to somebody perhaps that might be worth millions. And they're like, you know, so desperate to raise the capital that they come across perhaps overly desperate. 
<laughs> can't come across that way, folks. It's like, man, you have to take the attitude that I'm talking to you as an equal. You know, hey, we're we're mano a mano here, brother. And you know, I share a story that really resonates with a lot of people because I was probably a 25, 26 year old kid in the oil business. I had this very wealthy doctor. The guy was worth millions of dollars, but for some reason, Nick, he just would not invest. And I think the big thing scaring him was the fact that he knew in his mind, you could lose the entire investment. I mean, what happens if we drill a dry hole? You know, you're going to get a nice tax write off, but there ain't no oil there. So you're not going to get a return on investment. But I knew that he could use the tax benefits. So one night, as I was talking to this guy, I just said, Dr. Schnackman, it just takes two things to invest in an oil well. And he said, what? And I said, big balls and lots of money. Which of the two don't you have? And there was a pause. <laughs> and he said, tell me again, Brad, how much three units in your program costs? And I said, each unit's $50,000, doctor. So that's an investment of 150. Is that something you're comfortable with? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And he became one of my best investors. Now, how you called, out, you called out the ego there, Brad, as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but that's how one of his best golfing buddies would talk to him, right? I mean, it's like, come on, man, it just takes two things, balls and money. Which of the two? How many people, though, would say that to somebody worth millions? Very few. But sometimes you have to create that what I call positive tension to get someone to move forward in a process. He knew he had the money. It's just that. I needed to challenge him on that, like you said, his ego. But, you know, yeah. after we did oil, uh, after we provided a decent return, he became one of our best investors and he connected us to a lot of other physicians that were in his network. But you have to have that confidence and the ability sometimes to, you know, rough people up a little bit. I like to say that when you're selling or you're closing or you're raising money, you're almost like Floyd Mayweather in a boxing ring. You come in throughout the presentation over time with a little jab here and there, you know, but then boom, you got to come in with the knockout punch when you actually close. That was the knockout punch. <laughs> well, there's ego and there's respect in that, yes. right? Because like, you know, the, and this is, I think, an important um, distinction for people to understand here. Most people that have asked me for money in various mm -hmm. guises turn up, well, there's two, there's two things I notice, and actually this conversation has made me really reflect on it. First one is that someone who who is desperate, you know, that whole yeah. concept of needy is creepy. They come mm -hmm. across as desperate and it's really yeah. unattractive, right? So that's right. the first thing. The right. second thing is that also demonstrates a, a lack of um, a lack of value or a lack of, of feeling that they have value in the thing that they're asking you to invest in. So that then right. reduces confidence. Because if right. I turn up and go, yeah. you know what, I have got something really good here. Yeah. And quite frankly, you know, this opportunity is, is an amazing opportunity for you. Yep. Like, and, and, you know, quite frankly, if you're not interested, there are a lot of people who are right. But exactly. I want to, there's a different way of presenting it, which means that actually, okay, well now I'm going to listen versus, oh, can I have some money? Well, this thing it. here, it could work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's how a lot of people approach it. And I exactly. think I want to draw a line just quickly under one of the things you said at the very beginning, because I think it's super important is that if you are, out there having conversations with investors all the time, but not asking. I think that's that's the, the game changer in, in what you teach. Yeah, exactly. You know, all of a sudden, you don't, you're not going to show up as that person who potentially could be a bit more desperate or needy. You're just right. going to be a guy having a conversation with someone who's a peer. And then you can always follow that up again when the timing is right. And you're going to have a huge amount more credibility in that way.
Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. You know, you got to be confident. The other thing, too, and I learned this from Shark Tank's Kevin Harrington and some of the other sharks, you know, so many people go onto the show and they don't get a deal. And it's not that they're not a good person or that the idea was bad or the product was not good. The big challenge for most of the sharks is you haven't convinced them that you can execute on the strategy. Mm. So, you know, most people that are out there getting started, they're solopreneurs. They're working by themselves. Maybe they have a very small team. And the biggest challenge is you've got to convince that other person that you can execute. You can take my money. You can execute on what it is you're trying to accomplish. And you're going to be able to generate a return on investment for me. If you can't show me that, why in the world will I want to part with my hard-earned dollars? So how do you do that? You build a team around you. You say, this is my attorney. He's a partner in XYZ Law Firm. He's the guy that's going to keep us out of uh, trouble. I got my CPA over here. He's going to be keeping the books and records at the end of the year. You're going to get your K-1. I've got my uh, two advisors over here. They are experts in the business with about 25 years of combined experience. And so you start to build that team. Now, even though you might be new and you're just getting started, at least the investor now feels much more comfortable because you've shown your ability to execute. Yeah, you've such a powerful point. Resources. And you've also shown your ability to, to work within governance and yes. structure. Um, and to some extent that you're not, you know, in a in a um you know in an ivory tower, right? Well, By you yourself. know, most investors they just want to know, does this guy have a clue? You know, if you can show them, yeah, I got a clue, I know what's going on, your chances of success have increased exponentially rather than them looking at you just wondering, you know, you know, what's going to happen if I cut this guy a check for 50 or $100,000? I might not never see it again. Yeah. You don't want them to think that. You don't even want those thoughts to go through the back of their mind. Last question before we finish up. Yeah. Been awesome conversation, by the way. As I said, we haven't covered a lot of this topic before in the show, so thank you for that. Absolutely. In this kind of turmoil and uncertainty of economic landscapes that we're in, right? Lots of fear stuff going on that I don't, you know, buy into at all, right? You know, energy prices and all that. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying yeah. there's. What's your view around the landscape of raising investment now? Does the does the macroeconomics change that, or does it change the way that you have to approach things? I don't really think it changes the way you approach things. I think that you always have to have a worthwhile investment. I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, the investment has to make sense. Um, I'm actually finding it easier to have conversations with people. Let's face it, you know, here in the United States, the stock market is getting absolutely decimated. Um, you know, we got rising interest rates that obviously is having an effect on real estate. And obviously, a lot of the sellers are still pricing assets six, nine months ago. They haven't awakened to reality yet. But I think that more people out there are looking at alternative investment sources, you know, real estate, energy, et cetera. So if you're in one of those spaces, the conversation around that really, I think today is much easier. And we're finding that people are, you know, much more willing to contribute and invest. Um, so I think that, you know, the economic environment is always going to be there. It doesn't really matter when you're out trying to attract capital. I mean, you know, if you're trying to raise money 12, 18 months ago, was it any easier than it is today? I don't think so. I think it's really just largely tied to continually going through the motions and making the effort. You know, John Maxwell, one of the most famous authors in the world on leadership says, in order to have success in anything, you have to be intentional. You know, you just can't show up and expect money to come in a wheelbarrow. You have to be intentional. It's like a pilot when he wants the airplane to go up, he's got to be intentional. He's got to pull back on that joystick. You know, if you're a race car driver, you want to go faster, you got to be intentional, you got to push down on that accelerator. It's the same thing with raising capital. 
if you're intentional, and here's the thing, you don't have to look at this as a full-time job. I tell all my students, if you can just set aside two hours, three days a week, that's six hours I'm looking for to be making calls, to be doing Zooms, to be going to networking events, you will have success at this. It's inevitable because you'll find people that have the money that are willing to invest with you. But if you're not willing to do those things, you know, good luck. Awesome. Great conversation, Brad. Um, so before we finish, what's next on your horizon? You've got an event coming up, I believe, as well. We got multiple events. Yeah, I'm actually going to be traveling to Nashville, Tennessee next week uh, to visit some folks and to work with an event there. And then from there in October, of course, I go to Dubai, be speaking in the Middle East at Scalathon, one of the big events in the Middle East. And then, of course, we do our big event in November here in the United States called Capital Con. Would invite any of your listeners or followers that are U.S.-based to come to that. It's in Houston, Texas, November the 4th and the 5th focuses on using other people's money, investing in real estate, how to apply other people's money to your business. We're going to have a lot of big time celebrity speakers out there. So, you know, we always try to keep a full calendar to educate people and add value as it relates really to just learning how to attract, raise and close money from high net worth investors so that you can build, buy or scale your business. Love it. We'll make sure we link all that into the show notes. And where can people reach out to you personally, Brad, if they want to get in touch with you? So, you know, follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's just my first and last name, Brad Blazar. There are no E's in my name. It's all A's, B-L-A-Z-A-R. Send me a DM. You can go to my website, www.bradblazar.com. And the best email to use is info, I-N-F-O, at bradblazar.com. We follow up on all messages usually between 24, 36 hours. And we'd love to connect with any and all of you that want to learn how to attract and raise money. Love it. Well, listen, thank you. So anyone who's listening to this who wants to raise money or learn how to do so, this is the guy, right? As I said from the very beginning, we haven't touched on this topic. You know, the great thing about this episode, Brad, is I get asked all the time about this and now I just need to send people to the episode. I love it. <laughs> so a lot of the questions I was asking you tonight are questions that I get asked. And, you know, my, my fingers were burning too much from having to respond on LinkedIn messages. So I can send them your way. Um, <laughs> thank you, sir. It's been awesome having you on the show. Great to connect with you um, like this, like, you know, from our meeting last year in the US. Yeah. I want to wish you all the best. And, uh, yeah, no doubt I will see you very soon face to face. Absolutely, my friend. Take care. It's great. It's a pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.